Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe. In this week's show, we have a big-name guest, Microsoft founder and philanthropist Bill Gates. He talks about the work of his foundation, what he wants to see in the next EU budget, and what he thinks about the Oxfam scandal. To set up that conversation, we talked to Politico health reporter Carmen Porn about how Gates has shaken up the world of public health, not without criticism. Carmen sticks around to join the Brussels Brains Trust this week. In our Dear Politico advice session, we hear from an assistant to a member of the European Parliament who says their MEP is using his job to get trips to exotic locations at taxpayers' expense. We also say EUWTF about an Italian mayor's plan to host a Nazi reenactment and give a big EU thumbs up to the Iberian Lynx. That's all coming up in this week's edition of EU Confidential. Joining me now is Politico health reporter Carmen Porn. Welcome to the podcast, Carmen. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Now, we have you on for a very good reason, and that is because we have an interview coming up with Bill Gates, who is known as a very big philanthropist, and he's got a big interest in the next long-term EU budget, which the European Commission is going to propose in a few weeks' time. And he's also been doing the rounds of media over the last few weeks with his annual letter to his donors and to other interested people explaining what he's working on and why he's working on it. So maybe if you could tell us a little bit about the story you wrote last year. It was called Meet the World's Most Powerful Doctor. Why did you call him that? And what was the gist of that article? Well, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are the biggest foundation in the world. And their main focus, especially outside of the U.S., is on health. Why I called him the most powerful doctor was because over the past 10 years, he has pumped billions of dollars into the World Health Organization. And he has really tried to influence what that money is being spent on. Being a businessman, he has really focused on things that are quantifiable, for example, eradicating polio or malaria or improving the lives of people in, in certain developing countries, increasing access to vaccination for kids. Um, so he has been really influential. He has been involved in many organizations. He has been given money left and right to improve people's health across the world. And he is not a doctor, but he, you know, he could be. He's definitely, his money make him the, the world's most powerful doctor. And he's an excellent fundraiser as well, by the sounds of it, not just a, a donor himself. And then I wonder also where the borderline is between those activities and also becoming a lobbyist, because he also has very clear views and they've often been backed up by his results and and evidence. It's arguably one of the most effective 
areas in that development and aid world, the things that he's been working on. But he definitely wants the EU and the governments uh, of the world to do certain things. In your research, what has he been lobbying for most when it comes to EU funding and EU policy? He definitely wants the EU to keep funding research and development into uh, for example, treatment for neglected tropical diseases, which are these diseases that, you know, as, as you would tell from neglected, no one seems to care about until something like an Ebola outbreak happens and then everyone is concerned about. And obviously, unfortunately, this kind of diseases affect the world's poorest people. Sometimes pharmaceutical companies or other um, medical devices companies don't think there's a market worth investing in and and bringing medicines and treatment for in those countries. So he definitely wants the EU to keep investing in that and not only in in treatment of diseases that affect people in the EU or in the richer countries, but also everywhere across the world and especially in poorer countries. And that's also is not is not necessarily a very generous thing if you think about it, because as we saw with Ebola, that could spread across the world very quickly. So by protecting people in poorer countries, you actually protect people pretty much all over the world. And he, um, I think he has expressed concerns also as he, he's doing in the interview with you, that maybe Brexit and, you know, all this other financial problem that the EU has been going through might see the investment in this kind of issue decrease. And he definitely wants to keep it at the top of the agenda for the EU. Now, Gates is very smart to focus in on the EU because it is the world's biggest donor when it comes to these development issues. But he's not the only smart person because obviously there's a lot of people that want a lot of money out of the EU. What's your take on the demands on the EU when it comes to to health and other issues that you touch on? Who is Bill Gates competing against when he says he wants money to go to these issues? The good thing about the EU is that it has many different money pots. Many of the research and development funds for the developing world come for the development program, while at the same time, for example, for public health in the EU, for focusing on issues like better nutrition, maybe less abuse of alcohol, the EU has its other money pot, which is considerably smaller. Obviously, if we look at the EU, there are many organizations in the city, but also and the rest of the bloc that are concerned that actually in the next budget, the EU might not invest so much money in the health of citizens. And is the soft measure that the EU is very good at in public health to help people, for example, you know, be careful what they eat so they don't end up with cardiovascular diseases or um, be aware of how much alcohol they can drink to be on the safe side to say. And that's definitely one of the big demands right now in the health world from the upcoming budget. Now, one last question before we jump into that interview with Bill Gates. To help our listeners understand a little bit what he's talking about, he throws words out there like Gavi and organizations like Global Fund, and maybe they don't mean an awful lot to people who aren't familiar with them already. What are organizations like that, and and, and what are they doing? Indeed, uh, Gavi is a public-private partnership that was set up to actually increase or ensure in some cases access to vaccines for the world's poorest country. So Gavi set up a pool to actually get these medicines at very good prices and to provide it to countries in the developing world. And the Global Fund is focusing on three diseases, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. It's also a public-private partnership. Actually, private companies can donate into it. And, you know, sometimes Gates has been criticized for setting up these things that are seen at times as adversaries of the World Health Organization, because at the beginning, as he also says in his annual letter, um, they really were focused on results and 
not all the time they knew how to get those results. So they wanted to do something that will work out straight away. It's easy, maybe it's in a way that they are very used to dealing with, for example, companies and in the private world. And they have been effective, but I think over the past 10 years, since he has been really uh, engaging with the World Health Organization, him and his wife, who, who actually lead together the, the foundation, they've been more, op- more open-minded and then tried to work as much as possible with more actors and also to defer to the people that know best on the ground what would actually work in those countries. I'm actually going to slip one last question now that you mention it, actually, because the World Health Organization hasn't been without its own problems. Maybe they needed a kick in the butt from someone outside to actually if not teach them, to prompt them to consider doing things in different ways. Because I think what we've learned out of all of these, whether it's an epidemic or whether it's some other outbreak of a condition or a disease, it's that you need a lot of actors acting very quickly. You can't, no one organization can really do it alone anymore, can they? Indeed, and I think that's the problem because the World Health Organization is one of the oldest UN bodies, and obviously we've seen it with the EU, but you can imagine also with UN bodies, all the bureaucracy, all the hoops and the loops that you have to go through to do things, and also because it's such a big organization and there are people everywhere. It was really, I think the problem with Ebola seemed to be that it was really, really hard to coordinate and to respond fast. Um, Now, Gates has been involved and he has obviously been influencing the World Health Organization through his money. At the same time, he has received criticism for that because NGOs and other people who are really close to the work say that then the World Health Organization has tended to focus on the things that Gates wanted it to focus by putting money into it and less on other issues that might be similarly important. So obviously, as, as you can tell, you know, he can never do fully well. Whatever he does, there will be people that are unhappy with what he's doing. But as he said, you know, he has a lot of money to put it in and he thinks it's still not attracting enough attention to global health and to solving many problems that are solvable if there's enough attention and enough money given to it. Well, whatever you think of Mr. Gates, I think we can all agree he's much more than a geek. Thank you very much for joining us, Carmen, and explaining more about his work and the context of it. Sure. Thank you, Ryan. Now let's hear that interview with Bill Gates. I caught up with him as he released his annual letter to donors a few weeks back. Well, Mr. Gates, you are the world's most famous optimist. Tell us something that's making you optimistic about Europe and the European Union right now. Uh, You know, you have the extremely generous Nordic countries, particularly Sweden and Norway. You also have incredible level of generosity that comes out of the UK, uh, Germany, and to somewhat less degree, France. And so whether it's supporting... Gavi, which does vaccinations or supporting Global Fund that helps with HIV, malaria, and TB. You know, these European donors have been absolutely phenomenal. And, of course, a lot of the key organizations that do this work are based in Europe. The general awareness that we should help out poor countries and that we're making progress helping out poor countries is stronger in Europe than you know, say it is in the U.S. or Japan or other locations. And so we're super dependent, you know, whether it's women's specific issues or health issues, we're super dependent on that deep engagement that Europe has. And would you 
agree that that applies not just at the national government level, but also at the European Union level, and I guess more in the private pocket level, because I think everyone is quite aware that the US has deep philanthropic profits. Individuals are, are quite engaged, or at least many wealthy individuals are quite engaged. And in Europe, there's less of a tradition of, uh, of that happening at the individual level, and, and it's more seen as a government responsibility. Is there inroads to be made, both at that lower individual level and up at the higher European Union level, to push down the road that you've already been travelling on? In terms of philanthropists who are deeply engaged in giving to Africa, actually the UK... Uh, does very, very well there. So there's a lot of great philanthropy coming out of Europe as well. The European Union level has three things. The aid, uh, a lot of the aid comes from that level. And because it's of the scale and the ability to coordinate across many countries, it's done you know, more efficiently than if individual countries had to administer all of that. So there's aid, there's the R&D budgets where you draw on the, the top scientists throughout the European Union through Horizon 2020 related programs. And then you have these things where you provide financing like the Euro, European investment plan, external investment plan where getting things like agriculture and healthcare investments that wouldn't quite make private sector criteria but have big social benefits you have that as well. So the EU level has been key, and they're a key partner with us in Global Fund, they're a key partner with Gavi. You know, we sit down with them and talk about, hey, what's going on in Ethiopia and Rwanda and Nigeria, because they have expertise out in those countries. So the EU level has been very engaged, and the depth of expertise that you can get working at that level versus you know, trying to have all the member states do it is fantastic. With the debate around Brexit and the UK money that will be leaving the EU system, what's your advice or your request or what you'd like to feed into that debate to have an EU budget that is really focused on the future and, and some of those goals that you work on every day with the foundation? Well, when you look at the EU budget, the aid to Africa is more impactful per euro today than at any time. The whole aid area where we're looking at in health, you know, how do we measure this stuff? Which countries are doing well? How do we spread best practices? How do we use new scientific innovation? You know, so aid is the aid business, which is very dependent on the European thinking and and generosity. You know, that's better off today. And I think you know, making Africa relatively prosperous, you know, getting to a so-called low-middle-income level is both from a humanitarian and a stability point of view a great medium and long-term investment. Then you have European R&D that's clearly very forward-looking. Not having the UK involved in that, you know, is a disappointment because some of the excellence is up in the UK. You know, some of us can dream that in a soft form of Brexit, that R&D connection stays as strong as possible. But even if that doesn't happen, the continental R&D benefits from the European level picking the best people across the entire EU. And so, 
you know, like superconductor work is done here and TB vaccine is done there. Getting that out of the single nation construct makes it way more efficient, gives you scale and, and specialization and collaboration that's not possible if it's done at, at the one country level. And maybe one final semi-personal EU question. You'd have no reason to know this, but in fact, the first speech I ever wrote for the EU was announcing a 899 million euro fine against Microsoft. And I was wondering, how does the shift feel in your relationship with the EU that you have all of these really significant innovation and philanthropic engagements now? Is it, is it like a flip switch or was it something you always compartmentalized and never really thought about when you were back at the corporation? Well, Microsoft, you know, we had a lot of legal challenges in, you know, the U.S. and all, you know, every type of lawsuit, uh, you can imagine, and you know, the company is proud of the fact that it worked its way out of that and reached agreements, including with Europe. And you know, that all seems like a very long time ago. There was ne- certainly never any, you know, personal animus on my part towards those people. In fact, I know all those people. I talked, uh, you know, uh, them, and you know, I hope they spent that eight hundred ninety-nine million on the aid and R&D budget and not on, uh, you know, expensive cows. Let's talk about partnerships for a second. They're obviously critical to achieving change in what is a really complicated world these days. And I guess my view is there isn't really one cast of people or organization that has, has all of the answers. Do you see any common ingredients in the best partnerships that you've been involved in? Well, we work on upstream R&D so like creating an HIV vaccine or, you know, new insecticides that go into bed nets. If you take like that insecticide thing at the research level, it's up in Liverpool uh, that we fund the Liverpool School, you know, to do different studies. Then we have these partnerships with the big chemical companies like BASA, Monsanto, Syngenta, Mitsui, Sumitomo, where I met with the CEOs of all those companies at Davos, encouraging them to stay in this insecticide area, which from a P&L point of view is very small for them and the regulatory complexity is very high, but the potential human benefit is also very high. Anyway, those partnerships have worked super well, you know, and then you have the partnerships with the recipient countries to actually get the new sprain and, and bed nets out there and deployed. And so when you see something like cutting malaria deaths from a million down to less than a half million, you say, wow, those partnerships have an ambitious goal. You know, that is, you know, phenomenal. A half million lives a year, you know, very, very few things uh, could possibly rise to that level of human improvement. Two last quick questions. One is about the Oxfam scandal. What impacts do you think that might have on other development aid work and health innovation and and what do other organizations in the sector have to do to get through that scrutiny oh i'm not knowledgeable about the specifics there you know in general you know we should look at what these organizations have done that's good and the scale of what they've done that's good you know to the degree you have employees out in the field you know, the need to supervise those and 
make sure you're you're taking action. You know, the Catholic Church has had challenges with that. The U.S. Army has had challenges with that. And, you know, the field, because, you know, we care about humans and treating humans well, if you find a case where that's not the case, it looks particularly malign. You know, I certainly do worry that anything that affects the generosity is, you know, magnifying that damage because, you know, Oxfam in general does very, very good work. You know, they they have a very independent voice. Sometimes they agree with us, sometimes they disagree with us, but, you know, they clearly they need to be responsive. You know, something here, you know, sounds like it went very wrong, but to have that be the only way people view Oxfam itself or this whole aid endeavor you know, so, hey, let's buy less bed nets and let, you know, another 20,000 kids die because their supervision was improper. You know, I, you know, if you were asking me about some good things Oxfam did in proportion to their good work to this, this problem. Please do. You know, then I would get that it's, it's going to be presented in a, a fair way. That was Bill Gates talking to me a few weeks back, and now it's time for our podcast panel. Lena can't make it this week, so we've got Carmen Porn standing in with Alva Finn. Hey, Alva. Hi, Ryan. And welcome, Carmen. Thank you, Ryan. Hi. Excellent. Now, we are very prepared this week. I'm very excited. We've got two WTFs and a Dear Politico and a thumbs up. So I want to dive straight into that first WTF, and it is really WTF. Like, I'm confused and a bit outraged. So, in the Italian town of Colonia Monsesi, it is run by the Lega, which is the right-wing party in northern Italy, and the mayor is planning a rather unusual celebration. The Lega councillors are sponsoring a reenactment of the Nazi occupation with locals dressed up as SS officers. Now, this is just days before the commemoration of the liberation of the town and the former resistance partisans so the people who fought to get rid of the fascists and the nazis are outraged somewhat predictably you've all read about this reenactment what are your reactions alva it's very strange i just don't know what the purpose of it is and the democratic party have quite rightly come out against it and say you know this is an outrage to the families of people who were sent to nazi death camps so it's just very insensitive, I think. And I'm not really sure, quite sure what they are trying to achieve. It's not really a celebration of them, you know, being liberated. Is it really? It's more a celebration of Nazism. And who will go, actually? Or is it and just a dress-up party? Yeah, this is my point. I think that some people have a deep-seated wish, like a want to dress up as Nazis. And we've seen it before, you know, like high, <laughs> like figures, political figures dressing up as Nazis. I just, I, I don't get it. I've never wanted to dress up as a Nazi. Have you? Uh, no, but I don't have Prince Harry syndrome. Carmen, <laughs> what about you? Well, if I could be the devil's advocate or the mayor's advocate in this case. Um, Please do. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of fan mail. <laughs> I think, I mean, you know, I, I don't really know all the details and how much they want to glorify the Nazis. But I think at times people are trying to remind others of how things used to be and maybe how bad things used to be. So they maybe now understand and appreciate better this times. I'm from Romania, so I feel many of the kids that were born after the 90s, they don't understand how communism used to be. So if I would see that in Romania, obviously, depending how it's reenacted, I don't think it would be bad per se. But I get it if 
you had the Nazis in the reenactment with the liberators somehow. Yes, <laughs> exactly, yes. Um, I think maybe the details should be better prepared, maybe a bit more balanced uh, reenactment of the things. But, you know, I don't, maybe, maybe it's not all that bad after all, from my point of view. Well, if you're from Colonia Monsese, please send some more details about how it actually worked out. I'll be happy to revisit it. We've got a slightly, I wouldn't say less serious, but there are no Nazis involved in the next WTF. And it involves Aegean Airlines, who run a scheduled service from Brussels to Athens. They're the kind of new fancy airline from Greece. You know, they've overtaken or replaced uh, Olympic Airlines, which is the one that we knew for decades from Greece. And they've had a little change to their schedule. They don't fly every flight from Brussels to Athens anymore. They've suddenly scheduled a stopover in Strasbourg for the people who booked their direct flights. And they've admitted in an email to one of their customers who passed it on to me that the reason they're having this stopover that they hadn't told the customers when they made their um, bookings is to collect the members of the European Parliament from Greece so they've got a quicker ride home to Athens. No one's getting any compensation for this stopover, and the source who passed on uh, those emails is now going to have to miss an appointment for the renovation of his house. What do you think about that, Carmen? Well, I think the, the main problem is if the people on the plane from Brussels weren't informed that this would happen, obviously I think the EU's um, very celebrated air passenger rights should come in, and there should be, and also MEPs contributed to those, there should be compensated. I think if people were aware of it before, then you know they cannot really complain, but if they weren't and all of a sudden they, they stop in France to give a ride to some Greek MEPs, they should definitely be compensated. This is why I love Politico. I mean, I just don't think other newspapers cover this kind of stuff. And it really does show, you know, the kind of exceptionalism that sometimes MEPs are treated with. That is, I wonder how much they're paying for this. Are they paying for it? Or is this just some way that Aegean is trying to get into their good favours? You know, like that kind of... Either way, it's a problem. It's a a favour somehow and there is a price to a favor yeah exactly like that this it's all very strange and i'm so glad that it's being reported because it's just outrageous that people who have bought direct flights somewhere should have to do a stopover in strasbourg to accommodate meps well i think we had a very clear response there from the brains trust now it's time for an eu thumbs up so on the good news front this week we have the iberian lynx now This little animal is a picky eater. Despite its agility and speed, it almost only chases rabbits. Now, that was an evolutionary problem for it up until recently, and it came close to extinction less than two decades ago after a disease wiped out large numbers of rabbits on the Iberian Peninsula. But the EU has been putting more funding into biodiversity, and one of the beneficiaries is the Iberian lynx. So they put in a new program, and from a point of about 100 lynx, lynxes, what's the collective noun for a lynx, existing in the wild, it's now rebounded to 550 animals today. I think this is a really good example of, you know, cross-border stuff that other member states can't really do on their own, they don't have funding for, etc. And this is a, a classic example of good EU coordination. And I think climate change, environmental issues, all of this kind of stuff, it's a good example of where the EU can interject and, you know, potentially, yeah, save, save species, save the planet. Yeah. 
I love it. Probably the the best use of EU money <laughs> in many, many examples. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we, you know, I feel that we humans have destroyed many of the habitats of the animals. So I think whatever we can do to help and put money into it, it's really great. And it's great that the EU did this. Well, I think there might be some uh, near extinction Aegean customers sometimes. <laughs> so maybe Aegean Airlines is going to be the next beneficiary of this EU program. Well, yeah, maybe the MEPs might see to that. <laughs> They're flying them home for free, stopping off in Strasbourg. Alrighty, let's get into Dear Politico, our advice session, where readers write in with their problems at the intersection of the personal and the political. Dear Politico, For a couple of years, I've been working as an assistant for a member of the European Parliament, and I feel I'm in a dilemma about the way my boss conducts and prioritises the parliamentary work. My boss has fought to be a member of Parliament delegations which deal with exotic and interesting locations, and my boss always tries to participate in as many trips as possible, even if it is not very relevant for our political work. The more interesting the location, the more my boss tries to secure a spot in any travels. In addition to this, my boss is also a member of some of the friendship groups. Now, they're groups where you just express an interest or support for a particular issue or or geography. I have the feeling that my boss selects the friendship groups to join based on the chance that there will be a free trip or two coming with the membership. I feel that it's immoral to try to attend as many parliamentary trips as possible just to get to see more of the world. I also fear the many travels could be brought up by our political opponents in the 2019 elections. How should I proceed? I can try to take it up with my boss, but I think it would have cost me my job. I can also try to involve the party leadership, but I fear my boss would not only fire me, but also have me frozen out of the party. I hope you can help with some advice. An assistant who would rather work on politics than booking hotels and flights. What a way to sign off. That's very funny. I actually, in general, I kind of question the bottom line of this. I think this is something that everybody does. Anybody who travels for their job wants to go to more interesting places. And it does it not show that you are interested in the place because you want to go. I do think, you know, it's a rare MEP who isn't on one of these delegations. Like, I've seen that a lot recently when I've been looking at what MEPs do. Loads of them are on these delegations. Now, if they're getting put on these delegations above other people who have more expertise or something like that, I think that's a problem. To me, I probably wouldn't bring this up. How would you ever prove that is what their motivation is because they just want to travel? And also, I think it's a good thing that sometimes lay people go on these journeys. They learn more about these interesting places, the political things that are going on there. I'm not sure that I see it as a problem. And I, I think if you bring it up, you will get a little bit of a backlash. Of course, MEPs want to know about the rest of the world. Common. Well, my first question is, don't these people get paid enough money to travel on their own money if they want to go see interesting places? I mean, I understand that when you go with a delegation of the European Parliament, you might get more privileges and be treated differently. But still, doing it on on, um, taxpayers' money just so you can travel the world, when you could afford it on your own especially, I think that's a problem. I disagree a bit with Alba. I mean, I think it is human that you want to go and travel to places and maybe not pay for it yourself but at the same time i think the assistant i can understand his or her dilemma about it and i think from my point of view and i know it's hard he or she should take it up with the boss but and i think she actually or he has actually the line here that this could actually affect the MEP in the elections. And I think this is a good way to bring it up, not just saying, hey, you travel too much, but look, this could actually cost you your job next year. And, you know, it would look like an assistant that is actually preoccupied with the boss's job rather than, you know, with his or her 
ethical interest. At the same time, also the, the line that um, the assistant uses to sign off that is interesting more in politics than, you know, booking flights and hotels. I mean, I think the first step would be to take it up with the boss if he or she sees that nothing is changing, maybe to just quietly look for another job in the parliament with someone that actually would give the assistant meaningful work, not just uh, travel agency work. I think I'm somewhere in between the two of you. So some more context. Uh, there are 18 parliamentary delegations that are out and about this week already. So maybe that's what prompted this email. It was a burst of frustration of the last minute bookings. So they've gone to six EU countries and 12 countries outside of the EU. But then having been with MEPs on some of these work delegations before when I worked inside the European Commission, I know that some of them do do real work. I went to ones around internet governance and things like that. In countries like Azerbaijan, we were more worried about being tapped by the intelligence services than, you know, going for a spa day or something like that. So I think real work does happen on them. But maybe what I would say is the golden rule of any complaint is you need evidence. You can't just have a grievance, you need evidence. So I would be collecting information about what your boss does or doesn't do when they're on these trips. And you, you need to go with some real proof that it's party time. And that proof might be emails, it might be lack of engagement with the office while he's there, it might be photos, or she, who's female MEPs can do bad things too. But yes, let's face it, the numbers probably suggest it's a man. Yeah, so I would I would collect the evidence there, and I'd also examine your own role. What are you preparing politically for these trips? So if you have written speeches and made tweets and things like this that are just not being used, that adds to the evidence pile. But I think you've got to... Before you race to the explosive conclusion, you've got to go in with a little bit more evidence first. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I have one. I just think because I've been involved in some delegations more like at a ministerial level nationally, some of them are the most interesting trips you can go on. There's a lot of preparation that goes in, in behind them. And you're right. I think from this email, it probably seems like he's just booking flights and nothing is happening on, on this. And that is, a, that is a, a grievance. So I'm kind of backtracking on what I just said. But in general, I think you really have to question whether or not there is a political motivation. And then you, you say, oh, I'd love to do more work around these trips that you go on, because I really think that could be an opportunity for you not to just make, you know, do politics in Brussels, but do politics abroad as well, you know, really get down to grips with some of the problems that are in other countries and how the EU helps to solve them. And most importantly, if it is a really serious, large-scale problem in the parliament, get together with your other colleagues, send us some documents, and we'll publish a lovely story down at Politico about the true nature of the issue. That's all we've got time for from the panel. Thank you, Alva. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We'd love for you to officially become part of the EU Confidential community by signing up at politico.eu forward slash registration. You'll get a weekly newsletter that includes the podcast and invitations to any podcast-related events. We'd also be really grateful if you could like, rate, or review the podcast on whatever platform you use and spread the word about the show via social media. We're always keen to hear from you. You can reach us on email, podcast at politico.eu. And of course, EU Confidential is a team effort. It couldn't happen without Michelle Stoddart, Andrew Gray, Wei Dong Lin, and Antonio Fernandez. Thank you. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.